I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What does it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 41, we read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, published in 1532. Okay, very little is known about the early life of Niccolo Machiavelli. He was born on May 3rd, 1469 in Florence, Italy, during the reign of Lorenzo de' Medici. Lorenzo died in 1492 and thus began some difficult times for Florence. The French and then the Spanish invaded Italy. The Medici were driven from power in 1494, and in this place the Florentine Republic was established. Machiavelli served Florence in a political and diplomatic capacity in this latter period of the Republic. He never served in particularly influential positions, but he acquired enough experience to compose the prince. In 1499, the Republic collapsed and the Medici returned to power. In 1513, Machiavelli was arrested and tortured after being wrongly accused of conspiracy. He was released after no further evidence against him surfaced. And afterward, he retired to his farm outside of Florence. In retirement, he wrote poems and plays and short stories. And he wrote a history on the art of war published in 1521. The Prince has historically been understood as part of Machiavelli's strategy to regain status with the Medici, by displaying his astute insight into the affairs of state. Though there appears to be no evidence that the Medici ever read his book, but he apparently gained, regained enough status to receive a commission to compose a history of Florence for the administration. Still, he never served in any consequential position afterward. He died on June 21st, 1527. So Machiavelli is generally understood as the first modern philosopher. And what we mean by that is, you know, generally in the history of philosophy, divided into uh, ancient philosophy, medieval philosophy, modern, and at this point we're sort of in the, the postmodern era. But modern philosophy was really that transition from kind of an un- enchanted understanding of the world where gods or God dictates everything and, and uh, the world is a mystery to modern philosophy is kind of that transition to no, we can understand this. We can, we can use uh, math and understand the world as, from the standpoint of a sort of mechanized system. Rene Descartes is generally viewed as the, the father of modern philosophy, basically the father of science. And, but Machiavelli, uh, earlier than that, was the first to sort of make that turn from, you know, in ancient philosophy, the, f- the focus on, you know, virtue and excellence and what is the the natural mean and, you know, those sorts of things too. Like, no, this is how the world actually works. These are how people actually behave. You know, he, he turns to a focus on human nature as it is in its craven reality. And Machiavelli is generally, is generally associated with just deep cynicism and craven self-interest and self-absorption. And, you know, you'll shiver your grandmother in the back in order to get ahead. And we're going to get into some of that, and it's kind of fun, actually. You, you'll hear, I think, echoes of how all of us 
tend to understand politics of, you know, ah, oh, they're just in it for themselves and these sorts of things. I, I don't think that's a, a partisan or a philosophical attribute. I think what makes this conservative is Machiavelli's just deep realism and understanding, you know, human nature and trying to capitalize on it. Yeah. He, he talks a lot about how a, a prince should want to appear virtuous in various ways because people like the idea of leaders being virtuous and we still do. But yeah, he doesn't really, he get, kind of gets right to the point. It's like, yeah, yeah, that, that stuff is good. But really, here's how you actually have to govern. Yeah. And it's, it's very, yeah, I can see why you, why people say it's, it, it, this work represents a shift because it, instead of idealizing a, a certain philosopher king, like how uh, Plato did in the Republic, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of, it's like, no, this is, you're a prince, you're in charge of a principality. Here's how it goes. This is what you have to do. You know, this, this is how you avoid being overthrown by, the nobles, by the, the commons, by other foreign leaders. And he, it's it's definitely in the context of a kind of chaotic situation in northern Italy where France and the papacy and Venice are all contending to, to dominate these various city-states that are becoming pretty wealthy because of trade, mm-hmm. but are not especially powerful in the way that a great empire is powerful. And it's so that makes them a, a very tempting target for a nation like France, which has had then and for centuries the most powerful uh, armies in Europe. Big population, big country compared to little Florence and Pisa and Milan and the different area, uh, city-states of northern Italy that were, you know, apt to get pushed around by such a power. So it's a, it's a kind of, you know, where I, it kind of informs his, his outlook too because that, you know, somebody in that situation is kind of up against it. He's on the front lines and he has to be cynical and you know uh, what we now call machiavellian you know, mm. which is i mean it's a, a tribute to how influential his work is as his name became an adjective it's a chaotic situation that he's trying to survive in and convince princes how to survive in whether as you say they didn't actually listen to him but that's neither here nor there the ideas are still good mm-hmm. yeah so as you said his main thrust is the maximization of power, how to, how to maximize power as a prince, you know, leading a, some sort of principality. And some of the general themes in the book is that maybe contrary to popular belief or contrary to sort of how the priors had understood, you know, ruling a, a principality, the pa- power, Machiavelli will argue in many different ways, power is really derived from the willingness of the subjects to submit to the will of the ruler. In other words, in many different ways that the prince has to constantly strive to keep power in his grip in the absence of some degree of consent from the people, the prince will fail. So he's constantly shifting and calculating and trying to get on top of things because ultimately the, he has to have the kind of the the willingness of the people in order to maintain his power. And that's kind of the preoccupation of Machiavelli is how to, how to stay on top of that. And the, the, the end of politics for Machiavelli is power, grandeur, distinction, fame, you know, very much like, you know, Nietzsche will argue later that, you know, becoming one of the great figures and rising above the common people, that's mm-hmm. the real goal. Those are the, those are the great men. But, you know, rather than, you know, Aristotle's focus on, on the good and moral behavior, the good for Machiavelli is basically like the ability to calculate in terms of immediate self-interest, you know? Like, yeah. And you can, you can get that. Cause it's like, all right, it's good to be a good ruler. It's good to rule justly, but look, we got to keep the French out. Yeah. You know, we got to <laughs> keep the Venetians out. You know, let's, yeah. let's talk about how to There's keep no our time for together. a grand vision. Yeah. yeah it's and it, 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 
it really makes you uh you boil down to what has to happen, not what ideally should happen, what we would all love to happen. But th- that kind of discussion about how to stay in power is kind of you can see echoes of it, although I don't not maybe not consciously, but in Locke, you know, when you talk about why did men come out of a state of nature to be governed in a society, Locke talks about, and, and a lot of other conservative philosophers talk about, you know, the protection of private property. You know, that's why we come together in a society because otherwise anybody can steal your stuff and kill you. And then Machiavelli talks about, you know, how does a prince stay in power? You know, how how do you you can do a lot of stuff that the people don't like and they won't overthrow you, but look, don't take their property. And and he also mm-hmm. says, don't take their women, which is yeah. <laughs> you know, from a less maybe first things philosophy and more of a, you know, what works philosophy. He, they're, yeah. they're both getting at the same point. Don't take people's stuff. They will overthrow you for that. <laughs> you know, you can have some laws that are onerous. You can tax them sometimes, you know, you can have wars. Sometimes they want wars. Don't take their stuff. That's the only thing. And it, yeah. it's, <laughs> I think that's, that's been true for a lot of societies when they start to take too much of your stuff, then you end up out of power. Yeah, and in the uh, in the vein of first principles, I think he had some good good lines that I would consider sort of like conservatism in a nutshell. He says, "Never let any government imagine that it can choose perfectly safe courses." Mm. You know, no one or one never seeks to avoid one trouble without running into another trouble. Prudence consists in knowing how to distinguish the character of troubles, and for choice to take the lesser evil. I mean, that to me, that's that's almost like conservatism in a nutshell from m- many of the other books that we've read, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like you can't, you have to make decisions. There's trade-offs. There has to be trade-offs. And so Machiavelli just gets right to it says, you know, stop wasting time trying to come up with this grand vision that everyone's going to, it's going to be unicorns and rainbows and everything's going to work out. That's not how it works. You're going to have to make some trade-offs. Just choose the lesser evil, you know, stop thinking that one, one, one course is perfectly safe. <laughs> yeah. And, and the admission that we can't see all ends, that, you know, there's no overwhelming, overarching philosophy that's going to fix everything. That's, that's mm-hmm. good. That's that. Yeah. That's the, the constrained vision that, um, Thomas Sowell talks about in the, the book we read last season. You know, it's, yeah, that, that makes it conservative because he's talking about what is, he's talking about nature as nature, human nature as human nature, not a thing to be molded, but more a thing to be understood and, uh, exploited i guess if you want to yeah yeah get down to it it appears to be more appropriate to follow up the truth of the matter than the imagination of it you know mm-hmm. for a man who wishes to act entirely up to his profession's virtue soon meets with what destroys him among so much that is evil now that's this is kind of like the anti-utopia uh, yeah that's just not how the world works you know i i'm i'm much more interested in focusing on the truth of the matter than imagining what it should be or you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just makes you laugh about, um, about Machiavelli is he, he just doesn't mince words about, he doesn't really care what the, the ideal would be. Yeah, I, I love this and let's see if there's any application to any current, uh, work in Congress. It ought to be remembered. There is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions, and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new. Yep. This this is everything in Congress that we ever do. You know, like here, here's this 
uh, here's this new idea or, you know, a better way or a better understand this is more efficient or just better, you know, good government. But you have a, usually a smaller niche of people who just, they currently benefit from the current program and they don't want to give up their goodies. And so they will scream and they will claw and they will just put up a fuss where the people who kind of benefit from the new system are just kind of lukewarm, just kind of like, you know, the, the silent masses. Thus it happens that whenever those who are hostile have the opportunity to attack, they do it like partisans, whilst the others defend lukewarmly in such wise that the prince is endangered along with them. This, by the way, is the reason that uh, Republicans really had never had any hope. Let's just be honest here. They never had any hope of repealing and replacing Obamacare. Why? Because you're going to take away something that people had already gotten used to having. And uh, the people who would benefit is kind of the general public. And mm-hmm. yeah, there were people who were angry and wanted it repealed, but there's a lot more people who were, you know, receiving the benefits, you know, rightly or wrongly. And you're just, there was just never any hope that you were going to be able to take that from them. Yeah. That's that, that's that, that public choice theory, which I, I would, we should probably read something on that at some point, but yeah, the idea, yeah, a concentrated benefit and a diffuse cost, you're never going to get rid of that benefit. It's really difficult because, you know, I mean, it, even if, if, yeah, if something like that injures people, even if it injures a majority of people a little bit, maybe it's the 10th most important issue to them, 20th most important. But -hmm, if you're getting mm -hmm. that benefit, that's number one, you're going to vote about that. And anybody who's going to take it away, you vote against them. Whereas other people are like, oh yeah, I'd like to repeal that. But look, there's this other thing. I'm more concerned about taxes. I'm more concerned about the wars, you know, more concerned, you know, it's, so you never get that. Even if something polls badly, if it polls really well among a few people who are you know, fired up about it, that's, uh, that's going to stay in along mm-hmm. kind of along the same lines. I, I, I was struck by this, which he said is that when one woman becomes ruler of a principality through the support of either the common people or the nobles for these two opposing parties are to be found in every city. And they originate from the fact that the common people do not want to be commanded or oppressed by the nobles whereas the nobles do want to command and oppress them. That, that just seems sort of like the populist in a nutshell, the sort of like court yeah. country divide, <laughs> you know, the sort of Washington versus the world. And, and it's, mm-hmm. I mean, we see it channeled in the current discussions, you know, the current president and, and his populism, but it's always been a, a thing, and especially, you know, conservatives want to say they're not of Washington. They're, they're outsiders who are going to change it. It's like, well, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. I think even the Democrats sometimes try the same, you know, Jimmy Carter ran as an outsider quasi populist, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, just funny to see it, you know, in the same you know, 500, 600 years ago or fi- 500 years ago, you know, the same sort of divide, you know, there was nobles then, but it was also nobility was a little more flexible in some of these places, you know, or, a man could go into business and become rich and become a noble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't like in other some other countries where it's well, I don't care how rich you are if you're not of this blood, you you're out. You know, but if the Italian city states and England too had that a little bit of flexibility, where if you're successful enough, you can become a noble. Just like in America, you know, America, you know, you can become a member of the elite pretty easily. Yeah, know, just, yeah. Just make a lot of money or uh, have a lot of the right friends, go through, you know the right connections. But it still boils down to there is a sort of like in class and out class, and 
it's called nobles and commons. It's just, yeah, just different, different names for the same thing. Yeah. And to build on that, he says, he who obtains sovereignty by the assistance of the nobles maintains himself with more difficulty than he who comes by it, comes to it by the aid of the people because the former finds himself with many around him who consider themselves his equals. And because of this, he can either rule or manage them to his liking. What really came to my mind was uh, kind of the situation of JFK's assassination and then, and then Lyndon Johnson becoming president. And he was surrounded by the best and the brightest, you know, all of these, you know, Harvard people who came in with Kennedy and basically viewed themselves as much smarter and, and uh, more capable than Lyndon Johnson and how, and that is easily one of the main reasons that we got mired in Vietnam is because of, because he was constantly having to prove himself to these nobles, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, some, some folks who were around him and then, you know, they're the downsides to the rest of the people too, if basically um, prove himself and pay homage to certain, you know, big shots around him. But on a related note, Machiavelli spent some time talking about wise advisors. He says the first opinion, which one forms of a prince and of his understanding is by observing the men he has around him. When they are capable and faithful, he may always be considered wise because he has known how to recognize the capable and to keep them faithful. But when they are otherwise, one cannot form a good opinion of him. And related to that, avoiding flatterers, there is no other way of guarding oneself from flatterers except letting men understand that to tell you the truth does not offend you. But when everyone may tell you the truth, respect. Uh, respect for you abates. A wise prince ought to hold a third course by choosing wise men in his state and giving them only the liberty of speaking the truth to him, and then only of those things which he inquires, and of none others. With the counselors he ought to carry himself in such a way that each of them should know that the more freely he shall speak, the more he shall be preferred. Outside of these, he should listen to no one. I, I think that's really true. I mean, we have a situation, you know, wh- whether you do or don't like Trump, we're at a we're at a point where many of the wise advisors, let's say, have mm. either didn't enter or have all been fired or, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've worked for, for bosses who, uh, who wanted to listen and then others who mostly just wanted you to tell them what, what they wanted to hear. Yeah. That's hard advice to take for somebody who's at the top of his profession or, or his society, you know, the idea that you should let people, and it's good advice, but it's, it's hard once you're that powerful, I think, to, listen to somebody else say, no, you're, you're wrong about that here because mm-hmm. it's, e- I think that it's easy to get wrapped up in your own ego and also to say, well, look, I'm up here. I'm sitting in this chair. You're sitting in that chair. Why should I listen to you? you know, the people have put me here or mm-hmm. in the company, yeah, you know, absolutely. the bosses, the shareholders have put me here. Why should I listen to somebody who I clearly think is lesser than me? But it, it is. Yeah. I, I, Machiavelli definitely strikes the right balance here. You need, you need somebody to tell you when you're full of crap because everybody is at some point and nobody can see everything. And we, especially in something as big as a country, whether it be uh, the Duke of Florence or the president of the United States, somebody needs to tell you you're going a little off the rails here. Maybe, maybe rein it in. Um, mm. I, I feel like every president by the second term ignores his advice. And yeah, that's probably right. I think by the end, they're all just the people who were giving them good advice and weren't being listened to. They leave, and they, you know it's happened quicker in this administration, as you said, just because of the kind of odd relationship between the president and the party at the beginning. That's humility, I guess, is what he's calling for here, at least among a select few to say, "Yes, tell me your ideas. They might be better than mine." 
let's mm-hmm. that 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 um that felt a little more like the ancient philosophy to me. I'm saying you know be virtuous yeah, in this point. way, you know, and it's it's practical. It's like don't don't listen to everybody, you know. I mean that that's the practical part, but it's still it's still calling for a kind of virtue in the ruler that is uh, tough to cultivate, especially a ruler for life, like you would be if you were a duke in Florence or any of the other principalities. Yeah, there wasn't any, you know, absolute need or reason to listen unless like Machiavelli you had had in mind like how to maximize your power. So he gets into that that age-old question, is it better to be loved or feared? He says because it is difficult to unite them, love and fear in one person, it is much safer to be feared than loved. One of the two either must be dispensed with. In general, men are ungrateful fickle, false, cowardly, covetous, and as long as you succeed, they're yours entirely. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't have seen Aristotle say that, and you you wouldn't see, you know, folks of the unconstrained vision. They would say that, you know, men can be ungrateful and fickle and cowardly and covetous because that's how, they, because it was, uh, they were taught through by society as socially constructed. You know, it was, they, they were formed that way. And in a more constrained vision, we, what let's call a conservative vision, it's just sort of a recognition that, you know, men are just naturally ungrateful, naturally fickle. And when you're winning, they love to be around you. Mm. When you're losing, it's like, gotta go. No, you know, nowhere to be found. Yeah. I think, uh, it's like that victory has a, a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. President Kennedy used to say that. I don't, I don't remember who said it first but that's that's definitely true what one of the along those lines one of the lines that he said was I'm looking for the exact quote but it was basically men choose who they love but the ruler chooses who they fear mm, yeah, yeah so with the fear you're you get to decide and that you know for a prince is a very attractive proposition you know it's like you can do everything you want to make people love you and sometimes they won't I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's Richard Nixon, you know, he, he did a lot of good things, but they never loved him. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he, when he did mess up, they brought him down pretty fast. Whereas, you know, other, other politicians were able to capitalize on the, the people's affections, but it's, and I think this is, this is clearly more applicable to a, non, a non-democratic society. But yeah. It, right. it still, it still has its applications here. Uh, and then, you know, if you want, maybe in, in international relations too, you know, I think Obama wanted other countries to love us, mm-hmm. want to make nice with the enemies and, you know, we can make peace with Iran and, you know, we can be, we can all be friends. But I think in this, in that respect, I think Trump understands a little better that some of them will never love us and it would be better if they fear us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to, we can make a deal not to build a nuke or maybe just don't build one or we'll mess you up. How about that? <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. You know, that, and that, I think in the international sphere, the fact that we're a democracy doesn't really matter. It's still these kind of principles that, that dictate how states relate to each other. And then, and that the lesson I think is still quite, quite valid. It's great to have, that we have this inspiring city on a hill and that attracts a lot of people and it's in a lot of countries, you know, a lot of populations do look up to us, especially oppressed populations who, look over here and say, wow, they've got it good. They, they're doing the right things. But in terms of foreign leaders, uh, the stick is better than the carrot. To my yeah. Mind. <laughs> yeah. And at some point we need to read a, a more foreign policy oriented book. We'll probably do 
do that hopefully sooner than later. But uh, as a side note, I, I've always found it to be a little bit of a head scratcher. Why, you know, obviously Democrats talk about this a lot more than Republicans, but but conservatives will talk about it too, but losing prestige abroad. And I'm, I'm always just kind of like, is prestige what, something we care about that much? I mean, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or is it just like... <laughs> You know, being feared is what we care about. You know, you see a lot in the Democratic debate last time, uh, the the one in December here. There was a lot of that. You know, foreign leaders are not respecting the president. Who? What? Who's voting because of that? We're not voting to make the president of France happy, are we? <laughs> I mean, that uh, I don't think anyone cares about that. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a given that the the entire world. I mean, they gave Obama a Nobel Prize for for awesomeness. You know, nothing yeah. more. <laughs> so we already know how to leave it. But so Machiavelli does say, though, we the prince needs to avoid hatred. He needs to avoid being mm-hmm. hated. Yes. A prince must avoid those things which will make him hated or contemptible. He also, he also talks about something you've already mentioned, which is don't take people's property. Men more quickly forget the death of their father than the loss of their property or inheritance. So don't be hated. When you're hated, then people start to conspire against you and... Again, it's going back to the the general themes of this book, which is p- power is not static. You have to stay on top of it. It's a, it's a constant str- uh, struggle. It's a calculation and uh, execution. And and uh, he's going to say that if you're hated, then it, it creates new risk because people are going to want to get at you. And I think in American politics we see this already because we are absolutely at a at a fever pitch of of hatred. Yep. And Regardless of what you think about the, the the merits of impeachment, I mean, it is clearly. I don't think anybody has any question that you know Democrats wanted to impeach him from day one. There's a Washington Post headline from I think like March of 2017 that says the impeachment has already begun. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, it's just one after the next after the next. Deep hatred. Machiavelli is pointing that out, saying like, well, you want to be feared, but you don't want to be hated because that creates new risk for you. Yeah, and there is a difference. I mean, we don't always hate the ones we fear. That, that's where this is a psychological discussion, too, in a way that a lot of other works of pol- political philosophy or you know, governance are not. You know, he's, he's really getting into, like, what, what drives people. And, it, it's, it, and I think fear does drive us more than love, whether that's, that's probably not a good thing, but it, it's, I think it's a true thing. Yeah. Let's have this gut check from, from Machiavelli. Men have less scruple in offending one who is beloved than one who is feared. For love is preserved by the link of obligation, which, owing to the baseness of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. This really jumped out at me because let's just think of your own family. You know, is it is it easier to offend someone who you love rather than, you know, your boss who you fear, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing. It's almost like in many ways as humans, we, we save some of our worst behavior for those who are closest to us because we, we love them. And yeah. It's messed up, care. but it's true. Like you'll know, you know, I mean, if it comes to, should I miss this family obligation or should I miss this work function? You know, the boss doesn't care how fiery if you miss too many of those work functions, the family, mm-hmm. they won't be happy, but they're going to, it's not like they're going to lock the door to you when you come home. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of, it's, it messes up our work life balance and, it, and our priorities, but it's also, it happens to be true. Yeah. You have a, a really bad day at work and you're just not in a good mood. Well, you hold it in at work and then you just sometimes let it go at home. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I, 
I, uh, I'm more, or, you know, have a shorter fuse with my kids and man, and I always feel terrible about it afterwards. Like it was because that jerk at, at work did whatever. It's yeah. not because, not because you spilled it, you know, or, or left your shoes out that I was, I was so upset. So kind of ashamed, but, uh, you, you, you touched on this when we when we started the podcast, these are the good qualities. It is not necessary for a prince to have all the good qualities, but it is very necessary to appear to have them. Yeah. <laughs> is this not what we think about politics? Mm-hmm. To appear merciful, faithful, humane, religious, upright. You know, for this reason, a prince ought to take care that he never lets anything slip from his lips that is not replete with the qualities that he may appear to him who sees and hears altogether merciful, he, you know, faithful, humane. <laughs> this, is, this is what so many people, you know, just hate about politics. Ah, it's just, it's just talking points. They just stand up there and, you know, they act so, you know, righteous and, and they say the same thing over and over again. And they, mm-hmm. <laughs> here, here, here's Machiavelli, you know, 550 years ago just saying, this is what you got to do. Stay on message, you know, yeah. <laughs> make sure everyone you know, sees you as, as all having all these qualities and make sure you stay on message so that nobody can get, you know, catch you in a gotcha. It is fun. Yeah. It is funny. I mean, the way politicians present themselves, it's, it's, it's even so obviously false to anyone who's listening, but we like the, the falsehood in a way. Like we, like they don't even, well, we criticize them if they, if they're too honest, yeah. right? This is what I love about journalists is that you know, they'll criticize like, you know, he never gets off his talking points. And then as soon as he does, it's like, he got off his talking points, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't even like if they swear, you know, it's like, you know, there are curse words bouncing off the walls of the white house, but you know, <laughs> don't say them in public. Oh, you know, children, you know, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, we're, you know, we want, yeah, we want somebody who's going to do the, you know, the pions, the payon, I don't know how to pronounce that word, to, uh, you know, civic virtue and Republican heritage. And, you know, and these are all good things, but we also know that's not really what they're talking about when the doors close and the cameras go away. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Machiavelli, it, what I like about it is he doesn't make any bones about it. He's like, yeah, yeah, it look, look good, but seriously, here's what you have to do. <laughs> he does, yeah. And he doesn't even act, he doesn't yeah. even do the hand wringing of regret. You know, well, you know, it's a shame no, that we not at all. have to be so cynical. He's like, look, be cynical. That's how it is. And it's, it's refreshing <laughs> in its, uh, in its honesty. Yeah, and he doesn't even blame the other side. It's not like, yeah, that he did it. So you have to do it. That's the only reason. Yeah. That's something else we hear a lot too. You know, that's, that's how a lot of a lot of conservatives come on board with Trump. Well, he's gross in these ways, but look, the other side. They're pretty bad. Yeah. And that's I mean, that <laughs> they are pretty bad. That's true. But uh yeah, but he just says everyone see, sees what you appear to be. Few really know who you are. The masses are always taken by what a thing seems to be and by what comes of it. And then the world <clears throat> there are only masses. In other words, like the commoners, the masses, they're so dumb. They just—they're just gonna take uh, take things for at face value. So all you need to do is pretend and, and behave as if you have all these virtues, and and that'll be good enough. And in the meantime, then you can shiv your enemies in the back. You know. Yeah, it's a it's a lot a lot of things that work, but it's not a lot of things that we wish would work. I don't know. There's there's definitely a tension here. You read this, and you're like, yeah, that's true. But then there's also in the back of your mind, well, it, it, it would be rather nice if it weren't true, though. If it weren't true, yeah. You don't want it to be true, but here's one for my dad because this is what he. This is how he'll describe all uh, politicians. Those princes who have done great things have held good faith, meaning uh, honesty, of little account. 
and have known how to circumvent the intellect of men by craft, and in the end have overcome those who have relied on their word. <laughs> a wise Lord cannot, nor ought he to, keep, uh, be, keep faith, meaning be honest, when such observance may be turned against him. Because men are bad and will not keep faith with you, won't be honest with you, you too are bound to observe it with them. In other words, like, you got to lie all the time, mm. okay? Let's just, uh, let, let's stop pretending like... Uh, we need to be these, you know, Boy Scouts. All everybody lies. All these guys are lying all the time. You need to lie, and if you don't lie, then you're just gonna, then the, the, they're gonna take advantage of you. And I mean, is this how everyone views politicians, or yeah. what? You're like you just stand up there and tell the people what they want to hear. Lie, 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 lie. Make it look like you're so virtuous. And now, I've known quite a few politicians, and I, I think most of them. Sometimes you can't help moving in this space, but I think most of them are trying to do their best. They're there for at least originally for the right reasons. But yeah, I think this, you know, Machiavelli is just describing how 99% of the American people view politicians. Yep. I think that's right. All right. So treatment of others, he says, men ought either to be well-treated or crushed because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries of a more serious. They cannot. The injury that is to be done to a man ought to be of such a kind that one does not stand in fear of revenge. So, either go all in and crush them or treat them well, you know, because if you, if you treat them not really well, but not so bad that, well, they'll start plotting their revenge against you. Yeah. I thought this was a good answer to, um, the party out of power always wants bipartisanship. Yes. You know, and it's always, you know, (laughs) well, let's, let's, let's work together, but they're, as soon as they get the chance, they will turn on you because they don't like you. And, and, you know, you haven't treated them well in a way because you're not of their party and you're not doing the things they want. But even if you do a few of the things they want to try and smooth things over and be friends and, and whatnot, it doesn't uh, doesn't work. You know, it might work for this bill or this action, but it doesn't, doesn't convert an enemy into a friend. You know, mm-hmm. when the next election comes around, they're still going to be on the other side from you. Um, this highlight is... Um, since a prince is required to know how to assume a beast-like nature, he must adopt that of the fox and of the lion. For a lion is defenseless against snares, and a fox defenseless against wolves. Hence a prince ought to be a fox in recognizing snares, and a lion in driving off wolves. I mean, for one thing, I thought the phrasing was just very, very beautiful, whoever translated this. But it, yeah, I mean, driving off wolves, that's, I think, yeah, to, treating the enemy like the enemy. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, just... All right, that's enough. You know, you oh yeah, you say you want to be bipartisan and come together, and that, that's really only because you guys have forty-seven seats in the Senate and not fifty-three. And once the numbers change, then then you're wolves again. So let's let's not. You know, that's something the president's good at. I think. Um, yeah. Credit where it's due. <laughs> he he knows who's not going to be his. And it, you know, I mean, we we're we we're talking before the podcast. A bunch of bills just passed at the same week as impeachment and those bills were necessarily uh bipartisan uh compromises because you know we have a democratic house and a republican senate and all that stuff did work but i think everybody still knows what side they're on even if they came together enough to keep the government open and fund things and mm-hmm. change a few laws that we actually did agree need changing and uh but i think i don't think any of that's fooling either pelosi or trump into Oh look, we're working together. Everything's great now. It's like no, we we still hate each other. Yeah, yeah. We can get we can get advantage of one another in these <clears throat> bipartisan bills while at the same time 
impeaching. <laughs> it, it makes for a weird world. I mean, it's especially, I mean, because I'm, I'm not in DC anymore and it, that was never really part of it. It's strange looking in and I can see how people are cynical about how, how DC works. Although I, I the politicians I've known, I agree with you are mostly, they don't get in it to be Machiavellian. You know, they're not in it like, uh, what's his name? The Kevin Spacey show. Oh yeah. You know, it's not like just cynical and I'm going to climb the ladder and I'm going to, you know, I say, I think most people when they first run for office have a, something that they consider virtuous, you know, from whatever their perspective is. They want to fix some problem or speak up for some group that isn't being spoken for. Uh, it often does turn into this stuff though. When once you're in there. Mm-hmm. And let's have some, some perspective. I mean, here's a Machiavelli talking about it in 1532. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is, we've had worse times in America. We've had a civil war. Oh yeah. <laughs> we've, we've had, uh, we had a period of time in the from 50s and 60s where it felt like, or let's say 40s and 50s where Congress had so much to agree on and there wasn't quite so much fighting. There's more trust of government. But let's be honest, part of that was because there was such a domination by the Democratic Party. I mean, they they controlled the Congress for 60 years or something. So, you know, we're on the downside of that. There's, you know, you want to gain favor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, all you can do a, is cooperate. Yeah, all you can do is cooperate. Machiavelli says, maintain friendly relations with the minor powers without increasing their strength. Keep down the greater powers and do not allow any strong foreign powers to gain authority. You know, it's like just pat them on the head and treat them well or whatever. Um, but then once uh, from 94 on, you know, every, every uh, history of, of congressional vitriol starts with the Re- Republicans taking control in 1994 and basically blaming Newt Gingrich for all the nastiness and you know, maybe he deserves some blame, but let's really identify what the actual issue was. For 60, 70 years, like Democrats absolutely dominated the Congress and all of a sudden it became competitive. Yeah. <laughs> and up to this current day, it's very competitive. We have the House and Senate like swinging back and forth, the presidency swinging back and forth. And once it becomes competitive, well, people see that, you know, they've got to have advantage over the other side in order to get ahead, you know, to stop the other side from whatever they're doing. It's, it's a big difference from having, you know, basically one party control and, and then the, the minor party is just taking the scraps, you know, from off the table. Yeah, that's a great point. You're, everybody's nice until they think they can win. <clears throat> I got one more and then we'll, then we'll shut it down. This gives me some hope for America. Machiavelli talking about how to govern formerly free citizens. He who would keep a city accustomed to freedom will hold it more easily by the means of of its own citizens than in any other way. He who becomes master of a city accustomed to freedom and does not destroy it may expect to be destroyed by it. For in rebellion, it has always the watchword of liberty and its ancient privileges as a rallying point, which neither time nor benefits will ever cause it to forget. Whatever you do to provide against... They never forget that name or their privileges unless they are disunited, dispersed, but at every chance they immediately rally to them. So once you've sort of tasted liberty and tasted freedom, you know, it's in the bloodstream, part of the, part of the nature, part of the culture of, uh, of the people. And so, you know, that, that gives me some hope that mm-hmm. people continue to in, in 50 years still fight for, for freedom. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that is hopeful. And it, and it, like a lot of the things in this book also, it's kind of reassuring in a way to know that human nature is unchanged in these five centuries. 
Mm-hmm. Cause it means that there is something true there and we are not just, you know, clay in the hands of whoever's above us, you know, yeah. in, in, I mean, whoever's above us on earth, you know, to, you know, mold as they see fit and to form the, the new Soviet man or whatever other new version of humanity that utopians cook up. And I think that, that's a big takeaway here is, uh, Machiavelli understood human nature for better or worse. And, uh, it's the, still the same human nature today. So it's, there, are, there are lessons here. Some, some chapters of this book really have no relevance to 21st century America, you know, about a lot of them are really about, you know, why we need to keep the French out of Milan. Okay. Yeah. But the ones where he's talking more generally about how to govern, it's a, it's a real, real insight into how people think and how, what moves people. That remains worth reading. That's why I think we we probably both read this before in school at some point, and I know people still do, and there's good reason for it. That's a great close, and I'll just add this: uh, he gives us these human nature axioms. Men will always prove untrue to you unless they are kept honest by constraints. Now, that's that's generally a conservative view. Yeah, it comes across in a lot of our books, uh, the Federalist Papers in particular you know, kept honest by constraints. They will do it, but we have to have the right institutions and we have to have them in place. All right. That's Machiavelli. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.